Welcome to the Nigel Lee Archive, brought to you by Living Leadership, where every fortnight we share with you a sermon from the late Nigel Lee to encourage you in your walk with the Lord. Here's today's message. Chapter 11. Some folks in the church that I'm involved with started an Alpha course. Uh, Five non-Christians turned up including two students from Warwick University, both of whom trusted the Lord on the second week to be Alpha. Quite unbelievable. It's terrific. Lord's working. Anyway, chapter 11. What we're going to study um, particularly is verses 8 to 16, but I want, in order to give it the context, I want to read from verse 1 of chapter 11. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. The ancients are not just people like me, but um, those that he's then going to refer to in the rest of the chapter, the great, uh, as we may say, heroes of the faith. Verse 3, by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks, even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And now Abraham. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he is good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. 
If they'd been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Abraham uh, is the one always held up for us um, in the Bible as uh, the example of faith. What a believer believes. And what are the consequences of a believer believing in the believer's behavior? Abraham is always the one. Paul will do it repeatedly. James does it in chapter 2. Whenever they want to say, now look, if you're to understand real faith, what it leads to, how it uh, acts as the engine in the trajectory of someone's life, Abraham is the man that they come back to again and again. And he was also called the friend of God. That is a remarkable title, and we've been thinking of it in one of our songs. Um, you seem to sing stacks of stuff that I don't know, so I'm, I'm here on a learning curve, a steep Matt Redman learning curve. But it's a wonderful accolade, isn't it? The friend of God. Wouldn't you like to have that on your gravestone? That would be a good thing to have. I've also thought of having, he is not here, he is risen. <laughs> a friend of mine, an evangelist, says he's going to have on his gravestone, I told you I was sick. <laughs> but perhaps the best of all is simply the friend of God. What a wonderful thing. And faith can be a hot issue. I've known people uh, in churches, including my own church, who were sick, dying, it seemed, of cancer. And people were praying and praying that they would be uh, healed. And then the person died. Did they not pray with enough faith? Would a little bit more meditation on Hebrews chapter 11 have made the difference and kept the person alive? I sometimes think that, I mean, I'm not actually very good at visiting people in hospital, certainly not dying people. I think they tend to die quicker after I've gone to, to see them. But the, the other guy who, who works full-time in our church is much, much better at it than me. Um, but I sometimes think when I go to visit people who are sick, uh, as a Christian, I ought to be actually, if anything, helping them on their way. Why do we hold them back? Why do we say, Lord, whatever you do, don't let them go away to be with you for the rest of eternity. Keep them here with me. Oh, I, as a chap in, in church, I was summoned to the bedside and was told that he was dying. And I was actually kneeling on my knees, praying, more or less saying, he's coming, Lord, here he is, Peter. He's just opened the gates, he's coming. And he opened his eyes, this chap said, I'm not going yet. And duly didn't. And the thing, thing he told me later on was that he got, he was so cross about the, the ministrations of some of the nurses who were trying to prepare him for death in a totally modern National Health Service secular way. All you do is you think about nice holidays and the beaches you've walked along, and that'll just make your life nice and easy as it comes to an end. He said, I'm not having that. I'm Christian. I'm going to heaven. And so he determined to stay alive a little longer so that he'd witness to them more. <laughs> and he's still alive to this day. 
But it is a hot issue. I mean, does your faith make all the difference? Or is biblical faith actually helping us to think about these things in a different way altogether? Well, we're going to follow the, um, the 12 verse summary of Abraham's life given to us here in Hebrews chapter 11, rather than going all the way through the 13 chapters uh, in the book of Genesis, chapters 12 to 24, that set out the story. But actually, these verses are a remarkable summary of the process, the steps in Abraham's life. But let me just give it, as I said, a little bit of the context. The writer has just been defining faith. You've had reason after reason as to why we should put trust in Jesus, the Messiah, the crucified one. And then at the beginning of verse 11, uh, of chapter 11 here, verse 1, he defines faith as the conviction concerning certain things that are as yet invisible. That's what faith is. It's conviction and belief concerning things that you can't as yet see. If you could see it, it wouldn't be faith. But because you can't yet see, it is faith. And then he sets out four such convictions. First, a conviction to do with the creation of the world. The universe was formed out of nothing by God's deliberate plan. Verse 3. If you'd been standing, Beside God, just before he created the world. I don't know what you'd be standing on, but don't, don't worry about the details in this analogy which is coming to me. If you've been standing beside God just before he's, he's going to start making the universe, God says, I'm going to make the world now. And you say, what? What do you mean? How are you going to do that? What will Just by speaking? I will speak and it'll happen? That's the way it is? Watch me. And God said, bang, let there be light. And then he speaks again, as we said, and again, and he shapes out of nothing by the power of his word. Believers, we're not into how long it took and all the various mechanisms. Believers believe that the world has a purpose, that it has been brought into being, howsoever that happened, by a God who planned it so. Secondly, we believe the lesson of Abel's life. That sacrifice is the way to approach God. That my life by my sin has been forfeited. And therefore, if I am to come before God, I must come recognizing that sin is a murderer. God said it would be from the beginning. Once sin gets out, it will kill. It will kill you if it doesn't kill your substitute. The lesson of Abel's life, that sacrifice is the way to approach God. Thirdly, there is the existence of another world altogether. When you get to the end of your life, however soon or far off that may be, there is another world to go to. That was the lesson of Enoch's life. Enoch, as Genesis 5 says, walked with God. It's interesting that it says he began walking with God after he'd had his first child. I've watched many in churches, and it seems as if the arrival of family sometimes seems to, to slow down and stop their spiritual progress. Not Enoch. He walked with God, and eventually God said, well, you're so far from your home, come home to, with me. 
and he was not. And Enoch is alive now, somewhere. There was no body left, you see, nothing to bury. Enoch is alive with God, physically somehow. There is another world. We don't see it. It clearly operates on different principles, but there is another world. They got a peep at that uh, on the mountain of transfiguration when the Lord was talking with Moses and Elijah. Moses who died, Elijah who was caught up into the air. The only two ways that there are of getting into this real kingdom of God, through death or through being caught up one day, as believers who are alive when Christ comes back will be. And there was Jesus chatting with them. Now, Moses and Elijah had lived hundreds of years apart, and yet there they were having a conversation with the Messiah. There is somewhere else. And we're going there. And then fourthly, the lesson of Noah's life is that judgment is deserved and is coming. Now, do you see, those four are the pillars of biblical theology. How everything started in the first place, the creation. How we can get in touch with God now, sacrifice. Where we are designed to go when life ends. And fourthly, how everything will end. The four great anchors of biblical theology. You can't see any of those people or events yet. But those are the convictions that shape a true believer. I know why I'm here. There is a purpose to life. I know how to get in touch with God. I know where I'm going. I'm on a journey there. And I know the seriousness as Mark was reminding us, of life now under the impending judgment of God. Uh, what does a Christian believer believe? Well, Christ is at the center of each of those four great pillars of biblical theology. It's Christ who created everything. It's Christ who is the perfect Lamb of God sacrificed to take away the sin of the world. It's Christ who calls us home to be with him forever, safe and secure in that other world. And it is Christ himself who will come one day to judge the world and then to reign. Now, what the chapter does is this. It's going to tell us something of the story of Abraham. And Abraham gets, um, I think, 12 verses, is it, uh, in the chapter? Way more than anyone else. Moses gets five, and no other one of these heroes of the faith gets more than one verse. So clearly, in the proportions of things, as God has written it out, he wants us to think about Abraham. And he says, right, now this is what faith is. Now, let's see how it works out, the model, the worked example in Abraham's own experience. And so what I want to do in the time that we have left, the half an hour remaining, is to point out the seven steps in Abraham's journey of faith. The seven, if you like, major footprints on the trail ahead of you. If you are a believer, you will walk this track exactly the same. Believing the same things, experiencing in your own form the same things, and coming to the same ultimate um, destination. Now, for Abraham, as for us, 
faith is a living thing. It isn't something that you sort of exercise, you know, years ago, uh, you believed, and then, well, you just carried on thinking that. Abraham's own experience was of faith as a living thing that had to grow. It was designed to, to deepen, to reflect, to get stronger, and to face more serious challenges um, as he went on. Faith doesn't lead to the making of life uh, easier, smoother, ever more sort of uh, creamy, floaty. Some of the really big challenges that Abraham faced were towards the end of his life. If you say to yourself, if I really believed God, then painful or nasty things wouldn't happen to me. You don't understand biblical Christianity yet. Real faith includes the power and ability to go through stuff that God allows. Cancer hitting uh, my own family, my sister dying of it, my wife uh, having breast cancer. Uh, these things come not because we're not believers, they're not trusting enough. God says, no test, no trial can hit you, but such actually is the common experience of people. And God will, with the temptation, because he is faithful, open for you a way through, a way of trust, a way of escape. God does it. He knows what he's up to. And some of the things that Abraham faced, um, which you will go on in discussion groups to think about, uh, were not easy. But he came triumphantly through because he was a believer. He believed in some of the things that we've been singing about, and our own faith is to deepen in that stuff right now. Verse 8. Just follow the text through with me. This is so simple, you could do it yourself. You could explain it to someone else. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went. God called him. How? We don't know. There were no Jews before Abraham. Abraham was a pagan. The book of Joshua tells us that he was an idol worshipper. He is the first of the Hebrews. There was no Bible. There hadn't been any revelation very much. And he wasn't connected in family to um, the Enochs and, and the Adams and the Methuselahs and so on, uh, the Noahs that had gone before. But somehow, God revealed himself. Acts chapter 7, when Stephen stood up um, and gave his final great speech before they stoned him, he began here. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. Do you remember Acts 7? If you're taking notes, Acts 7 verses 2 and 3. It's a remarkable speech because he begins by declaring that this whole project that God has got going begins with God, the God of glory appearing. What happens at the end of that chapter, chapter 7 of Acts? The God of glory appears again to Stephen as the stones start to fly. And he sees the Lord Jesus himself on the throne, as Stephen says, standing to welcome the first martyr of the Christian church. This stuff is true. The God of glory appeared. Now, we don't know how, but it was enough to get Abraham traveling. And I want to simply say to those of you that are involved in evangelism or in years to come in various forms of Christian ministry, the thing to do, to aim at, to pray for, as you talk to people, as you, you, you're in alpha groups or any other kind of such thing, 
pray that through your words and through your example, the God of glory will begin to appear to people. Because that is the only thing that will get them traveling away from the mesmerizing, sparkly, glittery glory of the culture, the world in which we live. A greater glory. There was Abraham living in Ur of the Chaldees, a magnificent city. But the God of glory appeared to him. And his heart began to go in a different direction. He didn't know where this journey would take him. No more than you do. Some of you, I pray, will be involved in, in mission work in cross-cultural situations. Others in this situation, although increasingly in our own country, the Christian mission here is cross-cultural because the country is changing at such a, a rate and, and the, uh, the culture of those who are in the kingdom of God is becoming more and more separated from those around. So we're all ultimately cross-cultural missionaries, whether we stay here or go. May the God of glory be appearing to you and in your words and your work, may you be helped to show people something of the wonder and the attractiveness and the interest and the intelligence, the profundity of what God does. I was in, um, as I said, in Pakistan earlier on this year. I was preaching in, in some meetings in Lahore um, every night in a big sort of um, cloth thing. I mean, they, they create these great sort of like a, a wedding, Indian wedding reception thing. And there was a family sitting at the back and I asked um, my translator about them. Very interesting. Muslim family from a village some miles outside Lahore. Uh, he was a landowner, the man, uh, but from a very brutal family. His brother is known to have committed seven murders and got away with them all because it's, it's not difficult to put money in the, in the right hand and, and you get away with it. This man who was in the meeting, his wife had been very ill. I don't know what the disease was, but it was some degenerative condition. And she was increasingly confined to bed. In a Muslim man's eyes, useless. Can't cook, can't clean, can't look after children, can't thresh rice. What's the good of the woman? And one night, lying in her bed, she had a vision. And it was as if the Lord came to her. She, she didn't even really know who he was, except that she suspected who it might be. And the Lord said to this woman, I want you to pray to me. I am the one you should be praying to. And if you don't know how to, then there is a family in your village. Ask them. They were the only Christians in that village. And so the woman had herself carried to this other family and told them the story of what she'd seen in the night. And she said, well, she wanted to pray to Isa Masih and uh, Jesus and didn't know how to do it. And would they pray for her? And they said they'd be happy to pray. for her. And they pray for her healing. They prayed for her. Nothing happened. And she was carried back to her room. But she was pleased that she had done what she'd been told to do in the vision. Some nights later, the Lord came again. In the middle of the night, 
Only this time, the room, it seemed, was filled with, with light and power, and, and she was touched and absolutely healed of whatever this condition was. And she got up, and she was restored, and she told her husband that she'd been healed through a visitation from Isa Masih, the Urdu for, for Jesus. He said to her, don't you ever mention that name in this house again. If you mention that name, I will beat you senseless. We're not having you influenced by anything like that. And she said, but look at me, look at me, look at me. I'm healed. He's done it. Shut up, said the man. About a week later, as he was going, this man, to his fields in the morning, walking alone down a muddy track to his land, the Lord met him. Just like Saul of Tarsus knocked him down on the path. And he lay prostrate before Christ, utterly shocked and, and riveted and broken. And when he got up, some while later, he did something that, can I say, it is extremely rare for a Pakistani man ever to do. He went home and apologized to his wife. Went back home. He said, I'm sorry. You were right. I was absolutely wrong. Please forgive me. I shouldn't have spoken to you like that. I've also now met the Lord. Became a Christian. With his wife. And their child. And the granny. They dare not tell, certainly not his brother, there's a fair chance he'd be killed. They've told no one else in the village. I'm not even sure that they have told the other Christians who prayed. Because they are terrified. They come away from the village with lies. They give some reason why they're, they're leaving the village. You cannot understand how, uh, how they cope, but there are these early steps of faith. They come away in the evenings. They say, oh, I'm going to Lahore for some reason. And then they come to these meetings and they sit at the back and they're soaking up the teaching of Scripture about the Christ whom they have already met. How the Lord is going to work out that situation in the future, I don't know. But he's brilliant at it. I remember hearing the story of a, um, some years ago now, before the Taliban, or in Afghanistan, a, a Muslim man. He had a problem with his eyes, and he went to a, a Christian-run eye clinic. But he'd, he'd walked for some days to get there, and so he wasn't going to be able to you know, come in every few days to outpatients or anything like that. They gave him a couple of um, cassette tapes and a cheap player, tapes containing some of the stories about Christ and the teachings about Christianity. So he carried this stuff home secretly, and he, he kept it in his house. Uh, he didn't tell his wife. He hid it in the house. And when she was out, he would get this thing out and listen. But he was terrified of anybody finding out. And he'd listen to this stuff, you see. And as he listened and listened and listened, he became a Christian. And kept it all secret. What he did not realize is that his wife knew his secret hideaway places. And when he was out, she would get the thing out and listen. <laughs> And she had become a believer, but was scared to tell anybody, and not him. So there you've got these two Christians living in the same house, married, but afraid to tell each other what's happened because they've been listening to scriptures and tapes and the word of God. How is the Lord going to solve that problem? The woman had a vision. 
And in the middle of the night, she was met by a magnificent looking man. I mean, he, he looked like an Afghan, but there was something different about him. Tall, beard, wonderful. And he was advancing towards the woman, carrying a great big bunch of flowers, fresh, beautiful flowers with fragrance. And, and the woman was a little nervous and said, who are you? And he said, I brought you flowers. Yes, but who are you? I want you to have these. What is your name? And the Lord said to her, ask your husband. He knows. And so she told her husband what she'd seen. And the husband said, you know, I think you've seen Jesus the Messiah. What do you know about him? Well, well yes, actually, I've been, I've been a follower of his for a while. Well, have you? Well, so have I. How did you hear about him? <laughs> I've been listening to your tape. <laughs> so they began with a little fellowship that included forgiveness wonderful the Lord knows how to do this sort of stuff but they don't know the future Abraham set out trusting the God that had begun to reveal himself to him but setting out on a journey he didn't know where it would take him I want to ask you Today, have you set out on that journey? Each of you. The Lord of glory, in his own way, starting to draw your heart, to show you himself. Have you made that step, which Abraham did, of saying, right, we close up here. I'm going to follow the Lord whom I have started to meet you don't know what you'll be doing after graduation. You don't even know whether you will graduate. You don't know anything. But your life now is in the hands of the one who does know and the one who can provide, the one who, who will look after your reputation, who will plan and, and direct you. Some of you may be wavering even on the edge of this. You know, you, you ever stood on the edge of a swimming pool? You, you haven't jumped in yet. And you're sort of standing there and you're, you're wondering whether to go in and it's a bit cold and and you see someone advancing along the side of the pool towards you with the obvious intention of when they get to you um making the decision for you <clears throat> you ever been in that situation and as they get closer and you see their intention you decide to jump in and you you dive in well you may be like that and i want to urge you simply to Dive into Christianity if you haven't yet made up that mind. The Lord called Abraham. He was converted in response to God's call to him. First point. Next ones will be quicker. Beginning of verse 9. It says that by faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. As a result of his conversion and getting onto this journey of a lifetime, we may call it, he traveled as a pilgrim, a stranger, an alien. He had started to sense that his true home was somewhere else with the Lord himself. The sense of not quite belonging anymore, wherever he was. It is a very important thing among uh, Christians. I think in some ways, international students find this easier to relate to because of their own experience here. But it is actually to be the experience of Christians in this world. The sense that 
We don't have permanent roots now in this society. Our home, actually, is somewhere else. Abraham, by the day he died, owned how much property? He owned a small cave in which his wife was buried, and that was it. He owned nothing. He didn't become the king of anywhere. Other people may not understand this in you, but it is to grow in you as a Christian. You will serve the world and the culture. You will seek to do good and do kindness, but you know in the end that this world is not your home, as the words of the old song. You're just passing through. Other people will try and persuade you, you know, to, to get involved, to commit, to you know, climb up to the top of the ladder in whatever is your chosen career, and you're saying, yeah, but the ladder might be resting on the wrong wall. You know, I don't any longer quite belong here. My real home is somewhere else. That was an important part of his journey of faith. That inevitable sense of dislocation. Just, you don't quite belong here anymore. It says of Abraham that uh, he'd become a stranger in a foreign country. He'd become a pilgrim. He'd become an alien. And then it says, um, thirdly, something about his lifestyle at the end of verse 9. He lived with his family, and it mentions Isaac and Jacob, his son and his grandson, in tents. Well, why in all the great you know, writings of Hebrews chapter 11, why does it mention the fact that he lived in tents? Why is this significant in the life of a believer? Well, I don't know whether you've lived in a tent for very long. Hundred years? Cramped? Bedouin sort of lifestyle, sandy, dusty, uncomfortable, no running water, the things rot and wear out and blow down, and dust storms come and they really aren't very good. You'd be better off living in a house, wouldn't you? And Abraham lived that way deliberately cheaper, less established for the whole of his life. Other people, relatives of his, had houses. His nephew Lot went down into Sodom and got a house. They had more possessions and greater luxury and so on. He did not fall into the trap of thinking that his children had to have the best that was available because they were his children. No, he lived in tents with them. No matter that others lived in uh, more substantial surroundings. Why? Because he was an heir of some promises. And although they lived cheaply, poorly, what they had were some promises which they nurtured and held on to of something in the end that was going to be far, far better. Um, follow me just through the reading of these promises. Uh, go back to Genesis chapter 13. Genesis 13. It, it, it begins to be quite remarkable. Genesis 13 verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted from him, Lift up your eyes from where you are and look north and south, east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. Anything you can see. I was once on a, um, a sheep farm in Australia, and I said to the owner, um, 
we were in, in a sort of a dip and there were hills all around. I said, how much of all this do you own? All of it, he said. And he said, you could go to the top of any hill in any direction and everything you see, I own. It used to take him in the early days, his uh, Aboriginal stockmen, three weeks to ride around the outside edge of his territory on horseback. He owned about a third of South Australia. Well, God is saying to Abram, anything you see, it's all going to be yours, you know. Now turn to chapter 15, verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt, the Nile, to the great river, the Euphrates, right up in Iraq, Babylon, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaelites, the Amorites, and so on, the Marmites, all these different, different people. But by the time you come over to Romans chapter 4, you see how it's growing. Anything you see is yours. Now, even way beyond what you could see is yours. Romans chapter 4, verse 13. It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world. You see, God can hardly give you less than his promise, but he is at liberty to give you more. And God apparently always intended to give the entire world to the offspring of Abraham. It's remarkable, isn't it? What they were going to have as they sat in their tents and wandered around on camels was eventually far, far better. They had the promise. But their lifestyle, in the meantime, was kept simple. Hmm? Fourthly, verse 10. And now we're looking at what Abraham was looking forward to, his, his vision, what what sort of, as I said, was the engine inside him. Verse 10. Uh, sorry, let me turn back to Hebrews. Um, he was looking forward to the city with foundations. Is that the impression you get as he wanders around the desert and seems to be avoiding the cities? He came out of a city, but he was looking for the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Now, he had lived in a city Ur of the Chaldees, don't please imagine some sort of dusty, one donkey affair with a bit of sort of grass blowing through the sort of thing that cowboys ride into on the, you know, the Saturday afternoon BBC Two films. Ur of the Chaldees, at the time that Abraham was there, was such a magnificent city, better than many cities in the world in the 21st century. The gardens, the running water, the, the, the markets, the, the whole thing was absolutely fantastic. It wasn't some um, sleepy, dusty, primitive place at all. But Abraham, living there, could see problems. As this puts it, this community of people had no foundations. Because a city is more than just its post offices and its police stations and its castles and its cinemas and its discos and whatever. It's people. And as he looked at those people, their values, what they lived for, the choices that they made, what do they believe in, 
he could see that the whole thing, as Christ would put it, was built on sand. And so he began to have this dream in his heart that he wanted to be part of a community of people that had foundations. It was the longing of his life. What he was actually looking for, we now understand, was the church, the church of Jesus Christ. Abraham would have given anything to have been part of York CU. Do you realize? Because you've got some foundations. For some of you, they're still being put into place. But you are committed to those foundations being godly, biblical, gospel-centered. These are becoming the foundations as you listen to the teaching, as you learn from each other, and as you do Alpha stuff, and as you pray, and you keep one foot in, in a local church and another in the CU, and so that you're a witness on campus, but you're also learning about local church life that's different from your home. The whole package, it's fantastic. It's, it's built on foundations. And this dream, as Abraham moved around, he had this dream, I want to be part of a community like that, of, of a people whom God has designed, built to last, but not only designed, anybody can design, anybody can you know, doodle an architect's drawing, but God's actually done the building as well. So it's not cowboy builders so that the thing is a wonderful design, but it falls down once they've gone around the corner. It's built by God. It's dreamed, planned, designed, structured by God. That's what he wanted. Have you got any big dreams like that, biblically shaped, that which you want to be part of, to contribute to? Just thinking about the city of God, the kingdom of God, and where you might fit in and how you might contribute and making that one of the main things of, of your life's goal and dream. That is an important thing to start developing. That's what had Abraham going. If you were to turn over to the book of Revelation, chapter 21, Revelation 21, verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the brilliance, it shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And then verse 14. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The new community which God is building is resting on the teaching of the apostles of Jesus Christ those authorized transmitters of what he taught us. May your vision be built around the church and shaped by that. If you go to other countries, even in business or whatever, may it be with one heart on building the church, contributing to the church. Make sure that the foundations of your life are rock-like and not sand. The last word of the Sermon on the Mount is the word crash. Jesus has just been telling the story of the two men side by side who are building their lives. You could imagine two people sitting side by side in the meetings here, and you're both building your lives. You've come to the same university, you've got results, you've, you've got dreams, plans, schemes, and building your lives. You could see two men building houses side by side, and the difference between those two houses is entirely out of sight. Because above the ground, you wouldn't see any difference. It's just that one of those houses is simply bricks and furniture stuck on sand. The other has got foundation. And when the storms come that Jesus predicted, 
the storms of crisis, failure, illness, bereavement, and ultimately the judgment of God. One of those houses, Jesus had simply two words, no foundations. He looked at it. He might look at you building your life now. And the big question is, what are the foundations? Are you building on the rock of his word? Well, Abraham was looking for a city, a whole city, not just a house, that was built like that. And then verses 11 and 12 in Hebrews 11, we see something about the man's impact. How he became the father of what we may call miracle children. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age, and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. Dear old Abraham, he's 100. And he looks at Sarah across the breakfast table, and she was gorgeous in her youth, reputedly, according to Jewish tradition, one of the three most beautiful women in the Bible. Esther was another, and I forget the third. But by the time she's 99, Those days were a sweet but distant memory. The dear old girl as she shoveled in the cornflakes. She's past it. Let her have an honourable old age because she's not going to drop any sprogs now. Well, that would be the natural way of thinking. But apparently, God had promised that they, the pair of them, would have a son. And the impossible was what God was planning to do. And so it says of, of Abraham that he, he kept believing. Look in Romans chapter 4 again, uh, verse 18. Romans four, eighteen. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations. From Isaac came Jacob, from Jacob came 12, and, and, and the thing just began to multiply. The father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith, and gave glory to God. As he praised God, and as he mulled over what God had actually said, his faith remained intact, and it so happened. God answered prayer. He became the father. Well, just naturally, among the Jews, he became the father of millions. Amongst his spiritual children, those who are believers, so many you can't even count them. I remember taking my little daughter, and she's 28 now, she was six at the time, I took her outside the house one beautiful starry night talking about this stuff, you see. And can you count the stars, Ali? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh. <laughs> and you run out of numbers, don't you? And God said, Abraham, can you count the sand on the seashore? You couldn't go down to the smallest beach near you and start counting the sand. Well, I'm going to give you offspring. That's like that. And he hung on and he believed. What kept him going? The promises of God. Feed on them. Make them the bolts that you build your, your whole life on. Sarah and Abraham's story has been an enormous encouragement to, to so many, hasn't it? When I get to heaven, 
I got plans, as you can tell. Uh, I would, Abraham, there'd be too many people sort of queuing up to see Abraham. I would, I'm going to make a beeline for Sarah. And I would like to tell her how much I appreciate the story of her faith, what she went through, the doubts and the struggles. She came at times just sort of almost laughing at this stuff. But um, she hung on in faith through the difficulties, difficulties in the family, difficulties with Hagar, and so on. And God's purposes worked out for her. And I want to say, Sarah, thank you. Thank you. Because what you lived, dependent on the promises of God, has actually been a tremendous help to me and countless others like me. But then comes the challenge to me. My story is to be a help to some other. Your faith, your obedience, the clarity of your vision, your determination to feed on the promises of God and trust them and live that way is itself to be a source of encouragement to many others. And may the Lord give you spiritual children also. Miracle children. Not born naturally, but as a result of faith and prayer. People that you lead to Christ. Have you heard the story about the, the man who he got converted um, years, years ago? And uh, he was quite a shy man in some ways. And he went after some days to the man who had led him to Christ and said, I've, you know, I've become a Christian. What do I do now? So what, what now? And the man looked at him for a bit and then said a very remarkable, wise thing. He said, buy a notebook. And on the first page, draw two lines down the page, dividing the page into three. And on the left-hand side, write down the name of someone that you're going to pray for, that they might become a believer. And on the second column, write down the date when you start to pray for that person. And in the third column, wait, but eventually write down the date when you hear that that person has become a believer. All right, I'll do it. And he went away and bought a notebook and drew the line. Page after page, he began. And he lived his life. He died. And his two daughters were clearing out his stuff, emptying his desk. They found 17 notebooks containing the names of 22,000 people and by every single name, two dates. His name, I don't know. But I am profoundly impressed by that man's faithfulness in prayer. He would find names of people. He would hear, he would write, he would pray. And he pray them into the kingdom. What a welcome he's going to get. Bear that in mind as you set out on that same journey. As you move into prayer partnerships. As you pray for people with Alpha courses in mind. And any other way God chooses to, to bless them. May you have spiritual children. Abraham and Sarah together had a tremendous impact by faith. In partnership. And then verse 13, we see his death. He died in faith. All these people, it says. I mean, in fact, looking back over Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, uh, the writer says all these people were still living by faith when they died. They hadn't seen yet that which their hearts were big enough 
to long for. It hadn't happened yet. But they welcomed what they had seen from a distance, it says. They didn't receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted, they freely admitted that they were aliens here, strangers on earth. And they kept looking and trusting with their eyes on the far horizon of their inheritance. Great way to go. Still climbing, still looking, still trusting, with a heart big enough to contain a big vision. And then verses 14 to 16 speak of their ultimate destination after they've died. Now, people who say such things show that they were looking for a country of their own. Isn't that a fantastic way of describing heaven? A country of your own. Would you like a country? Of your own? You can get tyrants like Saddam Hussein who think that Iraq is a country of their own. You're going to get one of your own. Mm. If they'd been thinking of the country that they had left, they would have had opportunity to return, as did Lot, as did Esau, as did so many people. As some of the disciples that listened to Jesus, they went back. They walked no longer with him. Israelites in the wilderness, oh, they won't be, they'd rather go back to Egypt because the cucumbers were nicer. That's what they said. Aren't Losing out on the promised land for a few cucumbers. But people do it for less. They wanted something better than the best that this world could provide. And look how our verse ends. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God because he has prepared something. Wouldn't it be astonishing if when we finally get to heaven, we arrive and we walk around and it's a little bit like Blaythwaite House. Muddy outside. And a bit drafty sometimes. And then sometimes it's a bit too hot. Or anywhere else. And you go around and you think, well, I thought we we're going to have, you know, golden gates and pearly streets or whatever, whichever way around it is, pearly gates and golden something or other. And it looks like imitation pearl to me. No. When you get to what God has planned for you, God is not going to be in the slightest bit ashamed of what he has chosen to provide. You will be going saying, wow, Ooh, look at this. What imagination, God. Look at what he has provided for people like us. And God humbly saying, I'm glad you enjoy it not at all ashamed of what he's been able to provide. But what if he should be ashamed of us on this journey? Because he's made all these fantastic preparations, given his son, given his promises, worked in life, and we couldn't be bothered really to keep going on the journey. Would he be ashamed of us? I mean, supposing you've got some wealthy relatives in America. Long lost relatives, really, but you've kept sort of semi in touch, but they haven't been back for a while. But they're finally going to pay these now very wealthy uh, American cousins. They're going to pay a visit. 
to you and your family. So they're going to fly in one day and, and you live nearest the airport that they're going to arrive. So they're going to come to you for the seven o'clock meal and stay overnight. And then they're going to go on and see some other relatives and do the grand tour around the relatives, these wealthy American cousins that no one has seen for a long time. So your mother gets out the best china and she places being cleaned up for three weeks beforehand and everything is getting very, very ready. And seven o'clock arrives and they haven't turned up. And eight o'clock and they haven't turned up. And you phone the airport. No, the plane was on time. Everything's fine. Luggage is all through. Well, where are they? 8.30? By 9 o'clock, the meal is really spoiled. And they roll in about 20 past 9. Not a word of apology. And, and you inquire politely, saying, well, you know, everything all right? Why the delay? Oh, coming along, we saw a, we saw a Burger King. And we got a bit hungry, so we called in there and we, we sat around, we read the papers. They provide papers, you know, in Burger King. So we stuffed ourselves there. All the preparations, all the care, all the planning of the menus, all the cleaning of the place up, and they cared not that much for it. They stopped off on the way in some cheap fast food joint which attracted their attention as they were driving along. What would you think? What would your mother think? And we are called and traveling to an unbelievable inheritance, to meet the Lord face to face. And sometimes the things that slow us down and stop us are just track. God isn't ashamed of what he has provided for you. But he might perhaps feel a little ashamed when talking to the archangel Michael and they're discussing your progress because it seems as if you've rather stopped and couldn't care less and didn't have a heart of passion and love and commitment and discipleship and obedience. You're more interested in Burger King. May the Lord help us to keep trusting with a faith that's nourished Keep traveling, keep being a blessing to others on the way. The journey of a lifetime. <laughs> Father, thank you for your word. And though we haven't finished with the story of Abraham, help us to understand what we have thought about this last hour and to learn some more of that bit that remains about him in the chapter. Oh, Lord God, please fill our hearts with the glory of Christ and of his word so that our whole thinking is shaped not just by pressure and external stuff and our own history, but by your eternal word and your eternal spirit that we may walk with you as your friends today. For your namesake, amen. Thank you for joining us today. The Nigel Lee Archive is brought to you as a podcast by Living Leadership. For more information on the Nigel Lee Archive or Living Leadership's other ministries, please visit www.livingleadership.org. God bless.